Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Angelonia. I've Fringe Central in Edinburgh. Hi, how are you? I'm good, yeah. I'm not hungover. I had a night off last night, which was good. I cooked dinner for the family. I made three dishes. They're really tasty. I'm really good at it. And it's nice to be up earlier. I mean, I say early. It's 20 past 11, but I feel like Adam is a different time zone. You know what I mean? Because you can stay out till 5. Yeah, I know what you mean. Definitely. I've lost all the time. How's your shows going? Really well. Yesterday was awful. Um, but apart from that, we've had really nice audiences the past majority of the time. It's interesting when, like, you can have a full audience, but then I would say our second best show so far has been smallest audience but they were just really up for the crack and they were just like really high energy really responsive to everything and really like if anything slightly didn't land they were quite forgiven and there was momentum that you could build through it whereas yesterday which is really hard work i felt like even when you got a big laugh they reset it back to like absolutely zero and you had to like gain their trust all over again after every single thing but the other day with a really small audience that were brilliant they just like Okay. How did you end up doing the show with Sadia Asmash? So we just ended up we just gigged a lot together in London and ended up meeting that way. And then we were both like we don't have an hour of material to take up the Edinburgh to do a solo show. We don't like well we probably this is the thing, like I could do an hour, but it wouldn't be good. So I don't want to really do that. I don't want to put audiences through that. I'd say I have 40 minutes of good material, so I don't want them to sit through 20 minutes of like fluff. So I think Sadie was in a similar place looking to build material and wanting to go to the fringe, but not wanting to kind of back your first solo hour on like nothing. So we kind of realized we could do a kind of funny random bag check title for it. Because she's a Muslim and I'm Irish. And historically, they're quite terrorist backgrounds to come from. <laughs> so we thought, well, let's just do that as like a theme is for the show we don't really talk about it that much in the show but it's kind of like an overall theme about like about because we talk we both talk about our backgrounds a lot it does come up it comes up uh, and, and um just through that just from knowing each other and both wanting to go to the fringe and thought well half an hour is a good amount of time to do so we'll take it up and just apply them it worked out very well is this your first year at the fringe yes Aside from when I was here as an audience member when I was seven, when I came to see a show about Harry Potter and one about Kung Fu where a guy had glasses and he was like a nerd and then when he took off his glasses he became really good at Kung Fu. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> How did you get into comedy? Do you think when you were growing up there was a specific performer, a moment you kind of thought, oh I want to be a comedian? I think it was one of those things, looking back, I should have realized much sooner than I did. Because I realized I studied at music college as a classical musician. And then I kind of realized that I don't like going to see orchestras. And was like sat on stage in an orchestra getting paid and looking out into the audience and being like, I don't know why any of you are here. Because there's no way I would ever pay to come see this. Which is a very weird feeling. So I kind of thought, well, if I'm going to be a performer, I should do the things that I would want to go and see. And I was going to see a lot of stand-up comedy. So I thought, well, I'll give that a go. So I just started a comedy night in my uni. And I was on the SU, so I was like, right, let's do a fresher's comedy night. 
So my first stand-up gig, there was 300 people there. I was emceeing, and the bandaman was the headline. Who, if you don't know who a bandaman is, he's pretty much selling out a 400-seater venue at the Fringe every day. And I think that was just like a naivety where I was like, yeah, I can do this. Almost that lack of knowledge of what you should be doing start kind of helped me start. But looking back in my primary school pantomime, I played one of the jesters and I remember getting so into it that I would watch Peter Kay and Billy Connolly and like take notes on what they were doing and like how they told jokes, how they were funny. And this is when I was like 10 years old and I, it still took me to the age of 20 to realize that I'll be a comedian. You went to drama school as well, didn't you? No, so I studied I studied at Guildhall. Okay. But as a musician, and then through that, I didn't even know Guildhall was a drama school when I went. I was going up to people in freshmen, they're like, "Oh, what do you play?" And they were like, "I'm an actor." And I was like, "I didn't even know. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't know there were actors here." And I had I did like a little bit of drama when I was younger, but then I think maybe the drama department in my school was I mean it wasn't very good. They just really it seemed like if you were into it, you were into it, but there was no like. Whereas at Guildhall, I really learned about theatre and went to see stuff. And similarly to the stand-up, I kept going to theatre shows and being like, this is really, like, I love coming to see this. I'm always excited to go and see us actively seek out particularly contemporary theatre. And I was like, well, maybe I should go do that. So I just kind of, like, had that weird intruded. I suppose it's weird to me, but then that's just from being at a drama school. Everyone was like, you have to go to a drama school and get an agent and then do it. So I just started applying for stuff on Spotlight and stuff. was in a Shakespeare there before Christmas, which was really fun. I've done two Shakespeare's, I've done like a short film. And it's all just like, it's really exciting. I think it's difficult with the acting side of things because you don't, with stand-up you can just get up every night and just do it. But there's no space, there's no like open mic acting nights as such. You kind of always have to audition. And to even get the audition, you're kind of lucky without, you know, without a drama school back in. It's difficult. Um, you could do an improv class. I've been thinking about that recently because I do quite a bit of like improv on stage but I've yeah I've been looking at what because there's loads of those in London and I've made to do them that really enjoy them so I think I'll probably get stuck into that come September if I'm still alive. So when you decided to get into comedy and you organised the Freshers event did you get quite a lot of support how did your family take it you wanting to get into comedy? Well I think given the fact that they thought I was trying to be a classical musician they were already fairly on board with my terrible life choices because there's not very many opportunities for classical musicians, especially percussionists. And so I think I was always on that path of becoming a freelance something or an out of work actor slash musician slash comedian slash whatever you want me to be out of work and I'll put that on the list as well. So my family have always been really, really nice about it. I did say, I told, I told my mum and dad that I wanted to apply to drama school. And I did, got to the final round, didn't get in, but I'm fine, it's fine. And um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm fine, it's fine. <laughs> I was like, I'm going to apply to drama school because I really want to go. And my dad was just like, who's paying for that then? And I was like, not you, I guess. <laughs> but like, that's literally just because they can't afford to help. But I'll, I'll work something out. But in terms of the actual, like, they've never been like, no, get a real job, do whatever. They know, they know me well enough that I can't. I can't have a real job. I physically can't do it. So how long have you been going at comedy? Three years would it be if you started when you were 20? Three years, but I don't really count that because for the first year I just did the Guildhall Comedy Night and just MC. So I didn't write any material. I just did crowd work. So that was only once a month as well and only during term time. So I did 10 gigs for my first year. So I don't really count that. So I think Properly, I've been going for two years. I definitely benefited from that MCing and that being like loose on stage, but I would say properly doing stand up 
probably going hard at it for a year, but two years is like good spots. Okay, how come you decided that London was the place to go for music and then comedy? You didn't want to stay in Ireland. It's just blind luck, just blind stupid luck. I pretty much flipped the coin. Well, there's no actually, there's no music colleges and there's no drama schools in Belfast. So I knew I needed to like, but well, well, at the time it was just music college I was in. There's no music college in Belfast, and the ones in Dublin are decent. I think on some level, I was like, let's see what happens. Boys, I have a lot of issues with like separation anxiety since I was about seven. I've had real struggles. There was a point in primary school where I didn't go to school for like six months because I was just absolutely terrified of leaving the house. And um, like I came to London with like a youth orchestra, like during secondary school. I remember hating every minute of it and just like sitting, like we went to Oxford Street, it's like, let's go to Oxford Street, there's a nice like tree for you guys. And I just sat on a bench by myself with headphones on and it's just like, I can't, and this is the music, I was like, I can't deal with whatever this is. And then when I told my friends in Belfast that I was like, a blind big field on and stuff, they were like, are you sure? Like, that's really not up your street. And I was like, no, I fancy it. I fancy going, going there. And then I got an offer for a music college in Manchester and for Guildhall as well. And I remember just going, why London seems like the more, like, better major than create elements or whatever. Just still thinking about classical music. And like I said, I didn't even know it was a drama school. And the amount of blind luck involved in accidentally going to somewhere that's a drama school and find you have an incredible passion for theatre and want to be an actor. Because otherwise I wouldn't know. If I'd gone to the one in Manchester, it's just a music college. I'd probably be a musician right now. I'm not that there's anything wrong with that, but I wouldn't be happy. Yeah. And I wouldn't know what I actually want to do. Because I remember when I actually realized I wanted to be an actor, it was this bizarre sense of intense stress, but also like relief, where I was like, this is how all my mates feel about classical music. And I'd never been able to relate to that. I was always like, oh, they're all just saying that because it sounds good. But then I was like, oh no, this is how they must feel about like, what you actually want to do. How do you feel like you've met? I know that you were on Countdown. <laughs> and I want to know how you got that opportunity. I loved Countdown. I think it's class. I always loved it the whole way through school. I would pelt it home from school to watch it on Channel 4 Plus One. Because it's at 10 past 3. My school finished at half past 3. And then you can get it on Plus One. At 10 past. So I would get home from school and me and my mate would watch it with a bit of paper and like text each other what scores we got and like scores the whole way through. So I was bizarrely into it the whole way through school. And then I applied in my third year of four at uni, sent the application off because I was like, I really do like it. Didn't hear anything back and I was like, no, fuck this. And then just sent the same application form in every day for two weeks. <laughs> like, because I think I'd watched Shawshank Redemption recently, you know that bit where he sends the letter to the governor every day for like a year to fix the library. So I was like, I'm going to do an anti disray. I'm going to get on contact. And then after two weeks, they sent an email like, all right, you can have a phone interview. And then on the phone interview, you have to, they do like countdown rounds over the phone. So you have to like have a bit of paper in front of you and you have to get a certain score. And it normally takes people three times to get it just because it's so weird to do it over the phone. And I got, I got on my third attempt doing it over the phone. And then they sent me dates, couldn't make them, sent me dates, couldn't make them. Because you have to go up to Salford to Media City to record it. And then literally a year after that, it took such a long time for me to have like book out like a free couple of days to go and do it. I went up. And by that stage, I really wasn't practicing because I was practicing a lot for the phone interviews to try and like 
that better and do it. And then by the time I did, I was really bad at counting. And then, so it wasn't like, it wasn't even like, it, it was such a non-career move to go on countdown. It was just, I really like countdown. Okay. So I fancy going on countdown. But actually, in the end, I became a weird viral sensation due to my countdown appearance. Because... I got IRA, came up when I was picking the letters, and I filmed oh, myself gosh. watching it, and it got 800,000 views. Yeah. And it's just like, it's just, it turned out really bizarrely like that, but it wasn't like a let's get on TV and get my name out there or whatever. It was just like, I really fucking like Countdown, so I'm going to go and do Countdown. It worked out well. I got like a lot of kind of like traction on social media and stuff, but. One of the reasons I set up this podcast was because over Christmas I read Judd Apatow's book, Sick in the Head. Mm. And he pretends uh, to be, in different cases, different people of, of importance and mm. contacts agents, where he gets to interview some really cool people. Yeah. But he showed up at the door and the people would open it, and obviously it would just be a 13 year old kid or a teenager anyway. And his whole thing was he really wanted to be a stand up comedian, so he asked very specific jokes like, How do you write a joke? How do you do it? How do you know if something's working? And that's kind of what I want for this, for different creative um, fields. So I was wondering what advice you give people. Um, you know, for example, moving to London must have seemed impossible at one stage. And what, what would you say to like a small town boy or girl that wanted to come stand up comedians? Number one, I would say watch a lot of stand-up comedy. I think particularly in London, there's like a, there's a thing of people who are doing open mics and they're doing stand-up, but they don't they don't know they don't know what stand-up is. And I'm sure that's beneficial. I'm sure there's a benefit to just not having any outside influences and just saying what you think is funny or whatever. But I think to avoid you want to be original. You want to be creative. You want to be authentically. You want to be making new stuff, raising new ideas, making people laugh with your point of view. So if you don't watch at least the, the flipping the greats, like Dave Chappelle, Jason Lee, Joe Rogan, Pryor, Eddie Murphy, Mahar, you you're not going to know. You're going to end up probably just going over the same ideas. And also, like, if you want to do it, I, yeah, I don't know why you'd want to do sound of comedy if you don't watch a lot of it, because. That's the thing I was saying, where I, if I want to be a performer, I want to do something that I would go and see. So the small town thing, watch a lot of it. And that's advice I got from, if you know who Bert Kreischer is, watch he's got three specials on Netflix, watch them. I met him in Glasgow, just in a bar. And he was like, yeah, watch a bunch of stand-up until you find someone that you really, really like. And then you can do, you can do this with loads of things. Find someone that you enjoy what they create and then find out who their influences are. So if you're a musician and you really like a certain singer, find out who influenced them, listen to those people. And then you just get this like tree, that, like like a family tree of what created that person that you really, really like. Um, and then the move into London thing. I don't know if you need to move to London to do stand-up. I don't, I don't think you do. Like the Belfast comedy scene, really, like as an example, is really taken off like in a massive way at the minute. And people are doing really, really well for themselves. Um, a lot of people say you have to move to London because you have to be on stage every night. And there is a benefit in that I can be stand up seven nights a week if I want to. And I can get an unholy amount of stage time. Whereas in Belfast, there's less of that. There's less nights. But I think no matter where you're from, even if you're from London, 
to move entirely away to a new place is the most beneficial thing I've ever done because you can you stop you get rid of any preconceptions you have of yourself because in your small town that you've grown up in or even in London you've built these ideas about yourself and how you act and how you're supposed to act but then if you move away and don't know anyone when you arrive in a new place then you can be authentically yourself the people that know you from when you're 12 know you as a 12 year old and still have those ideas about you so when you're 20 you still you're carrying around stuff from when you were 12 and you don't need to be carrying around anymore yeah so i think that really the only way to rid yourself of that kind of baggage is to go away because you can always come back if you want to come back you can always come back i know people that have moved away and then moved back and they always they've always benefited from it 100 what would your advice be for dealing with self-doubt? Do you still deal with it or do you have any like moments where you kind of thought, oh, this show has done so badly, is this for me? So Yeah, yesterday. This is, <laughs> this is a funny day to do this podcast. Yeah, the self-doubt thing. I think this is tricky because you, you want to be realistic. You don't want to be banging your head against the wall with something that, you, that it's never going to work out. So so you don't want to be one of those but then again if you if you love the thing that you're trying to do you will work out how to do it no matter what it is you'll find a way to crack it and there's times in anything i've done whether it's been like uh stand up or acting or writing i've been like you just have those moments where like it's all it's like self-actualization to use the proper psychological term where you're like oh this is what this is my ideal self matching up to my real self so what i just did there is what i want to do every single time and i think hold on to those as best you can but also in a very blind boy book club fashion find value from your own terms don't get don't place yourself worth on what the audience say or anyone else place it on yourself like even with yesterday the show went really badly I'm less annoyed that they didn't like it because I know that those jokes are good. I know that I could work out how to do those jokes to those people. So it's about me. It's about you have to like have to set your own standards, and that's the only way to do it. Because if you listen to anyone else and you're like trying to appease anyone else, then you're just you're never gonna be happy. And also, you're probably never gonna be happy if you're in a creative freelance career. Anyway, you're never really gonna be happy with what you've done. Every month, I I, list, I record every single stand-up set I do, and I can do a stand-up set that I think is the best stand-up set anyone's ever done in their entire life. And then, I'm, literally a month later, this happens every month. A month later, I'll listen back and be like, "That is utter shit," and I would do that entirely differently. And if you're proud of what you did six months ago, great. But also, maybe you should be improving. I think I'm. Any stand-up that I've done over three months ago, I'm like, do that so much better now. Although yesterday was terrible, so I don't know. But I don't know the whole self-doubt thing. I think you can have. I think I can. It's all been said. It's all been said. Like, hold yourself to your own standards. All that stuff. You're always gonna doubt yourself, and as long as that doesn't make it to the stage, yeah, if that doesn't make it to the stage, don't let it come out. You can have all the doubts in the world, but as long as you go on stage, like you're. Comedian that's ever lived. If you're not trying to be the best comedian that's ever lived, 
Yeah, this is a very fucking toxic and masculine thing to say. I'm trying to be the best comedian that's ever lived, and if you're not doing that, why are you doing it? I'm trying to be literally the best at everything I do. I want to be one. Of, I want to be the best actor I can be, and I think that's going to be a fucking great actor. Like I think, and I'm probably wrong. I'm probably going to end up being like a very washed up actor and comedian. That's the statistical <laughs> likelihood. But I genuinely believe. Like I have a mate, Ryan, and if you ask him. He'll tell you that he is the best actor in the world, and he's he's not wrong because you can't be right. No one knows who the best actor in the world is because it's entirely subjective. No one knows who the best comedian in the world is because it's entirely subjective. Yeah. So maybe I'm the best comedian in the world. Maybe whoever listens to this is the best actor in the world, or comedian in the world, or musician in the world, or writer in the world. No one knows. Might as well fucking swing for a home run and see what happens. Yeah, although I'm waiting for the day when you're bad at something, because you obviously do acting, <laughs> comedy, writing, you have the show yesterday, poetry. <laughs> so you also do your own podcast, mm. 42 podcast. Yes. Where did that idea come from and what is it about? It was a similar thing well, at that point in my life where I was like, I want to do things that I consume, I want to create things that I consume as a, like an audience member. So I was listening to loads of podcasts and I thought, let's my auntie had bought me a little Zoom recorder thing for recording xylophone music. <laughs> and it never got used for anything musical at all. So I was like, let's give this a go and let's um, let's record a podcast. Find a mate of mine who's a sound engineer and a musician. Spoke to him at length for two hours. And very interesting guy. He's like a practicing Buddhist. And, and I just wanted to... It was before I started stand-up. Which is interesting because a lot of stand-up comedians start a podcast because they think that's the thing to do as a stand-up comedian. So actually, in reality, my podcast isn't that funny all the time. Like there's funny moments, but it's not. It's not necessarily a comedy podcast. It's like an arts podcast. And then when comedians are on it, it's funny. But I think it was just in that same mindset of oh, I like podcasts. I'm very arrogant. I think. I think I listen to podcasts and go, oh well, I. I can do that, and then I just try, and then it might be bad. I know there's bad episodes of my podcast, but there's also good episodes of my podcast. So I just think I, I think I think I've realised over the course of this conversation that I'm a very arrogant man. I can't say anything because that's exactly what I've done. I've <laughs> <laughs> been like, oh, yeah, I could do that, and then at least you know trying something, you might as well. Exactly, you're gonna. It's gonna be bad. That's my thing. First time you do anything, it's gonna be bad. Yeah. Not that this is bad. That. I'm great. Um, but like, <laughs> you have to be really bad to be willing to be really good. That's what I heard. It's the thing. I heard. Um. I, I think this rings so true. So for people who went to drama school, or went to music college, or become like a relative expert in something. So I'm relative to the general populace. I'm an expert in classical percussion. Which is nothing to fucking shout about, but I have reached a level where I know a lot about it. I am proficient, or at least was proficient in it. And then the, once you get to that point in one thing, the thought of starting again and being an absolute beginner at something is super, super daunting. So if you've acted for 12 years and then, some, and then someone's like, oh, you should learn the violin, that's like, because you're used to progressing so fast now that you're like an expert in something but to go back to having no clue where to begin whether it's with stand-up or writing or acting or to just start again and be bad like as, as a musical example like there's violinists that are amazing right? but if they're when they first picked up a violin they were terrible they were really really bad at the violin and it's very obvious to see that with a violin 
Whereas with the podcast or with acting or with stand up, I mean, you can tell it's a bad at stand up, but like, it's less jarringly disgusting because beginner violin is awful. And it's that thing of like, as a very modern example, everyone starts on Twitter with zero followers, and some people now have 90 million, and some people have four. Yeah. And to apply that to any kind of creative field is like, you're starting from square one. It's not going to be good, but as long as you're better than you were yesterday. And you don't have an agent, do you? No. So this is one of the things I was thinking about because I'm not exactly on the comedy circuit, but um, you know, just some reviewing and stuff. And I hear about you quite a lot for someone that doesn't have an agent. And I was wondering again what advice you'd give to people that don't have agents because you seem to be gigging all the time and working every night before cringe. I definitely see the benefit of having an agent, and it's better almost to sign me. But I think I'm quite good at the whole social media side of things. I'm quite, like, I think a lot of, if you look at, right, Foil Arms and Hall, they're brilliant. Yeah. And they're doing McCune Hall every day of the fringe, which is at 1,200 seats. So they're selling 30,000 tickets. And do you know how they got big? Stupid Facebook videos. Yeah. They have 929,000 likes on Facebook. That's mental. And it's little things like that. It's that stupid countdown video, posting a little clip of stand up here and there, um, posting little clips of crowd work, and just letting people know that you're out and about, you're gigging. And I think, I don't, I think with stand up, the lack of agent thing, I don't know. I think the, 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 the best thing about stand up for me is that it's just an entirely solo pursuit. It's you. I don't have a character when I'm on stage. There's no, there's no like front. Of like a like a Stuart Lee kind of like like this kind of character, and I love that it's just me talking, and I think I apply that across the board where I just go. I did a lot of terrible open mics. I still do a lot of terrible open mics, but less. And then you find out what open mics are good. You meet people. You try and do well. You try and be the best. I try and be the best person at every gig, and that's horrifically arrogant. When I did like that gig that you were at, where Reece James was on the lineup, and he's Fucking miles ahead of me. He's on Mark the Week and all. But still, I went into that gig going, I'm going to be the best. <laughs> I'm going to be the best comedian on this lineup. I don't think I was, but that's all you can swing for on a given night. That's what I quite like. It's just like manageable expectations. Where it's like, just be the best on on a given night. And gig incessantly and, and message people. and Yeah, I, I don't know how the agent the stand-up agent thing, I'm sure there's, there's. I mean, I say I'm sure there's, there's any friends, but 100% there's, there's gigs that I could get if I had an agent that I can't get right now, and there's a bit of weight that an agent brings when you carry that kind of industry, like prestige with you, but I think stand-up is most of the time a meritocracy, so you, if you're really fucking funny, they're gonna book you again, and they're gonna tell other people about you be like, oh, we had this guy on, we had this girl on, and they were really, really funny. Like, you could have all these ideas about about kind of the, the industry, and the only thing, just do what you're in control of. That was a rambly way to come to this, but that's the best way to put it. You just have to find out what you're in control of, and what you're in control of is writing jokes and being as funny as you can every single time you go on stage, and hopefully that'll get you somewhere. What's next for you? What's next? Um, I applied for drama school this year and didn't get in. I was. Where are you applying? 
girls hall i buy the girls hall oh. i buy the girls hall lambda welsh and rcs and i got to the final round of girls hall and didn't get past the first round anywhere else <laughs> and i do, I'll, I'll apply for drama school again hopefully i get in um again the arrogance in me is like obviously i'm gonna get in i'm the best actor that's ever lived keep doing stand-up the podcast I need to like get on, making it way more regular. I think I'm gonna do it weekly from September. And then I think I've just decided this is right on. I had a big I had a big idea for like because you know that you know the Edinburgh comedy art is very different to like an American stand up special where it's like it has to be emotional. You have to learn stuff and then do other stuff. Which has never been my style. I just say silly stuff. But I've had an idea for an hour of sandals that I'm going to write for next year's Fringe. That's going to be based on the play Translations by Brian Freel. And so next year I'm going to win Best Newcomer. And then, yeah, I think that's going to be interesting. I think that's going to be the focus of my stand-up for the next year is going to be trying to write that more intellectual Edinburgh hour that has jokes for days, but also has a through line and a theme and that whole thing because I've never really, I've always been doing shorter sets club sets just trying to do jokes 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 and being an Edinburgh kind of thing it would be interesting to do that kind of more emotionally involved or stand up yeah and lastly where can people follow you if they want to keep up with your story and your stand up comedy get me on twitter at that tutorial like P-H-A-T and then tutorial V-I-T-T-O-R-I-O um, because it's that because uh, uh, I was like, oh, people might know that Victoria, so they're like, oh, it's that Victoria. I'm sure you get Victoria all the I time. I get Victoria all the yeah. time. It's two T's, right? Two T's, one R, it's all fine. Victoria Angeloni, all lowercase, no spaces on Instagram. And then Victoria Angeloni Comedy on Facebook. And there's some clips up there. And the 42 podcast available on Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud, Acast, other places. Check those out, they're really good. Uh, I would avoid the episodes that are called rambling because that is just me by myself. Rambling? Yeah, don't listen. Actually, those are just for me to work out material into a microphone. Like, don't listen to the ones with guests. Don't listen <laughs> to the ones that are just me by myself. Um, yeah, that's all my that's all my social media handles. Yeah. Okay, thanks for yeah. today. Yes. I really appreciate it.